0: you know, it's only been going in one direction, right? And the, and the border, um, you know, the, 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 the border has become harder and harder and more militarized, you know, over time. And the, the tactics that are being used to enforce the border become, you know, ever more inhumane. Um, it was always, you know, it was always a problematic space even back then, but again, it's like, you know, it, just when you think it can't get any worse, right, it gets worse.
1: I you've
2: always taken such charge.
3: Are you an inventor? You are listening
2: to the Border Chronicle. Are you an inventor
3: or do you know an inventor? Welcome to the Border Chronicle podcast. I am Todd Miller.
2: And I'm Melissa Del Bosque.
3: Uh, doing a special recording of our podcast in front of a live audience in Patagonia, Arizona. Um, Special thanks to the group Voices from the Border and Sierra Club Borderlands and others who helped sponsor this event and organize this event. Um, And this is our second, what we'll call a, it's not technically live because you're not hearing, you're, the people who are listening to this are hearing this in the future <laughs> from now. But it's it's live in front of a live a- audience, and this is the second time that we've done this. And it seems like, um, you know, time has flown. It was precisely a year ago that we were here doing very similar things. Um, and so um, today um, we will be interviewing the artist, photographer professor at the University of Arizona, David Taylor, um, about his work. But I first wanted to mention that I feel personally like I've known David now for years and years and years, but yet today is the first time I remember I, I've i met him in person. And uh, I remember years and years ago, more than 10 years ago, I was um, doing some research uh, in the, on the Tanahata Nation with David Garcia, an elder from the Tanahata um Nation and he mentioned uh, David's work uh, going to photograph the monuments or the border markers or the obelisks. I think they're they they're called. And those are the monuments that people are probably familiar with them the 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 monuments, the markers that are directly on supposedly where the actual international boundary is. And so I heard a lot about David. I felt like I've known you, David, uh, since that since that moment. and that's kind of how I want to begin the first question um because also and this is for listeners um we just watched a um a video from david called complex and this video will be embedded with the podcast so just go to the post and you can click on it and you'll be able to see the video and the first question has to do with that video so i inc- definitely encourage it, encourage you to do that um, but the the I wanted to connect the monument the actual, the monuments from from a previous the previous work that you that you've done David with um and the idea of nation building, right? And I want to to look at your work with complex which in which if you could explain it for the listeners a little bit a couple, give a couple sentences about what complex is um and that has to do with immigration detention and how, like, how those two things connect as one thing. And the second thing, um, which I find interesting, and, and, and you've contextualized the, the co- complex, the, the project this way, too, is looking at the pervasiveness of the border, like looking at the border as beyond what the monuments are on this international boundary line, and more expansive and more geographically expansive in terms of, of being a part of the landscape the US landscape in a lot of ways. So I wonder if if we could start, you know, looking at complex also just looking at what drew you to do that project, like how did you decide to do do it how you did it, but looking at it through that lens, those lenses of of looking at the border in in, in a kind of more expansive way.
0: Well, first off, thank you so much for inviting me and uh it's a real honor to be here with both of you and um i'm enormously um uh, appreciative of the work that you do and have uh, great respect for the um you know the commitment that you have to the you know this this uh area and this you know this subject matter and um you know the the intense um uh, human consequence, right? That's that's taking place all around us, all the time, and and um, you know we're in the middle of a humanitarian crisis. And I think the witness that you um, bear of that unfolding tragedy is really, really important. So it's a real honor for me to be here speaking with you. And I feel the same way. That I feel like ultimately our work has been in conversation for a long, long time. So, Thank you. <laughs> um, speaking to complex. Uh, the um, the nature of my work over time um, has has been uh, revisiting uh, uh, the borderlands for 20 years now, and so the first encounters I had with the obelisks were at a moment when there was no border wall. Um, the the if you would call it. Um, uh, border wall um, it would have been instead named um, the tortilla curtain in San Diego at that point and maybe some, some similar structure in Nogales um, and it was Gulf War and Vietnam War era landing mat that was used as sort of um, impromptu border barrier and then most other places were barbed wire you know, some chain-link fence. Um, The first time I visited Nogales, it was chain-link fence, and you crossed the border through a turnstile. It was in the late 90s. Um, So um, the the monuments are, uh, in many ways, these very complicated, um, these very complicated indicators of our relationship to the border. Mexicans referred to them obelisks when, when they were first installed in the late 1800s as the iron teeth of the north. So, so it was very clearly, from a Mexican's perspective, a, a border of conquest um, and a product of um, imperial enterprise on the part of the United States. Um, but fast forward 100 years to the moment Right after nine eleven and the beginning of the border security industrial complex as we understand it now, the obelisks seem like positively dignified expressions of an international boundary um, almost benign um, and so over the course of that twenty years, revisiting that space over and over again um, i've i've seen the proliferation of of this and, and hardening of border security regimes. And ultimately, as, as that 20 years unfolds, something that I hadn't really been tracking until um, late in the Obama administration, early in the Trump administration, was this increase in immigrant incarceration and increase in immigrant incarceration in for profit prison facilities. and, But I was tracking this um, uh, change in terms of the sense of border security extending out from the actual geographic, you know, um, immediate geographic delineation of the border. And at some point it, it occurred to me that, you know, these prisons and all of the other manifestations of um, surveillance and security we see that either um, are aligned with border security or somehow supplement sort of the immigration enforcement regime, they're, they're all ultimately border space in one way or another. Um, and, and, and sort of replications of, the, of the, um, the security regimes around the border.
2: Yeah, so, um, so complex is, is harrowing, really. Um, and I think it, it takes place during the pandemic. You're, you're interviewing people who have been detained during, during the, the pandemic. Um, how, how did you make a connection with these folks and, and, and get to speak with them? And are you still in touch with them, I'm wondering? Um.
0: So the connection to the, the people who so generously sh- uh, share their testimony um, was through the Florence Immigrant and Refugee Rights Project, um, which is a very, very important advocacy agency um, located both in Tucson and Phoenix, and they provide pro bono legal services to people who are in um, immigration and asylum proceedings. Um, and they're one of the largest organizations of their of their kind. Um, and through... Um, Uh, Greer Millard and Daniel Hernandez who are the uh, the outreach and comms um, staff uh, and uh, at the Florence Project I made a connection to the people that we interviewed and and I was um, working with uh, Francisco Cantu the author of The Line Becomes a River Um, he had a project that he was uh, doing and also an article he was working on for the New York Review of Books, and I had this project in mind. And so we sort of teamed up and um, asked if there was a way that we could be put in touch with people who uh, were um, recently released from immigrant detention. And that began a a project that actually has continued on in the form of of an archive. Um, that a number of colleagues are working on with the Florence project um, but the, that was the initial point of entry for, for that effort And I had been um, having made this recognition and so you know sort of seeing the news cycle and, and realizing that there's this enormous um, uh, number of Immigrants and and asylum seekers being held for indeterminate periods of time in for-profit detention centers. I had set uh, myself to the task of creating a um, a sort of geographic survey of these detention centers. So the thing that you don't get from the film um, is that I have a I have a 33 image uh, portfolio that will continue to grow um, of similar types of imagery of this what amounts to a vast industrial landscape of immigrant incarceration. Um, so it's this thing that we have built in the last 20 years, some of it pre-existing, some of it is a, is a byproduct of the sort of the pivot away from mandatory minimum sentencing um, and the prison industry having all these vacant beds and then realizing uh, through the um, uh, legislation like SB 1070 that, well, we can't, you know, we can't lock up, uh, uh, you know, nonviolent offenders anymore. So we're going to lock up immigrants instead. Um, that that really is. A, I mean, it's slightly oversimplified, but actually not that much. Um, and so, with the hardening of the border, locking up migrants became, you know, a, a lucrative industry. Um, and so, I just. They're very, from the ground level, they're very nondescript-looking facilities. Um, they're oftentimes away from any sort of um, population centers, so they, they go uh, pretty much unseen. They're, they're more or less invisible. And so, um, long story short, drones became very sophisticated um, and incredibly powerful tools, and they're still relatively... Um, uh, um, you know, unregulated um, at this point. That's about to change, uh, and so it—it was—it felt like the right tool and the the means by which to sort of make, you know, this landscape visible. And so that's that's really what you're what you're doing is you're you're making an orbit uh, via drone around the um, La Palma detention center. And incidentally, the the, the female voices um, uh, are all. Um, women who had been incarcerated in Eloy. And as you sort of pan around, um, looking to the, the north, the facility in the back, one of the facilities in the background is the Eloy Detention Center. So um, yeah, so it just, it, it a way to make um, something that uh, is not readily apparent um, and not easy to document visually um, uh, visible.
2: I've got a comment, and then I'm going to pass it to you, Todd, uh, just one. Uh, I, I just wanted to say I, I was checking out the the collection that you have of detention facilities uh, from the air, and what, what what really struck me is just how massive they are. Like These are huge, huge facilities, which you can really see from a drone's eye view, and they're also just carved out of farm fields, so you see these farmers' fields leading right up to these massive uh, detention facilities that have been built to incarcerate uh, uh, immigrants and and I'm thinking these farmers are probably starving for labor in their fields you have people who came a lot of them probably for work who are now detained next to the farm field who are also just being fed awful, awful food and so there's just these layers of, of uh, irony and uh, tragedy, I guess, which just shows how completely out of whack and the system is at this point. Um, So I just wanted to make that comment. I was really taken by that, especially in Texas. There are so many detention facilities in Texas. It's, it's, uh, yeah. So I'm going to pass it on to you, Todd.
3: (laughs) Oh, I mean, yeah. I mean, the, the also the, one of the things, just based on the footage of and complex, you know, looking at the, it almost ha- it has that industrial feel to it. It looks like it could be, you know, a series of factories or and, and, until you see at one point, you know, the people walking through, it has that mundane day day to day, you know, feel like this is what people see as they walk through through the, the industrial, like it's an industrial wasteland, but it's actually for an incarceration of people. It's, it's um, yeah, it's a, quite a provoking work. I don't know if we want to, um, now David has a lot of different projects, so uh, in, our, in, our, in our time here, I guess our time's kind of limited, so um, maybe, Melissa, do you want to ask him about?
2: Yeah, um, I mean, we talked a little bit about the the monument markers, but I wanted to talk about your project, The Limitations. And uh, this is uh, a really interesting project. So you and an artist from Tijuana, um, and and I'm going to let you tell the story of how how you decided to do this this project. Um, But you go and you make these markers, and you're delineating, the U.S.-Mexico border in 1821 which takes you to like Wyoming and places like that where you would not think oh this was the U.S.-Mexico border at, at one point so I was hoping you could talk about what spurred you to to do this collaboration and, and I'm thinking you've probably got some pretty good road stories also that I'd like to hear <laughs> and then you also made up some like Sort of official-looking logo for the side of your band, so
0: you wouldn't get hassled. So I'm hoping you can talk about that because that's pretty clever. Well, so that that project called Delimitations, um, yeah, it's in many ways um, a a collaborative outgrowth of the practice of Marcos Ramirez. He's a he's a very important um, artist from Tijuana, and and credit where credit is due, um, he's really probably you know, one of a handful of artists who are responsible for the fact that we even have the idea of border art. Um, probably the most um, uh, readily identifiable work that he's produced um, uh, that sort of has entered into the pantheon of what's considered border art is a piece called Toyan Horse, um, and it was a two-headed um, Trojan horse that stood about 30 feet tall that was installed immediately on the um, border at the San Ysidro port of entry and it was there for like six months. And it was um, made of uh, uh, wood and um, it was ultimately kind of a skeletal structure. So it was this idea of a Trojan horse that looks both north and south that you can see through. And so it's sort of a self-defeating you know, in terms of the way the Trojan horse story plays out, right? It's sort of this um, uh, self-defeating edifice, right? Sort of memorializing that that, um, uh, story and speaks to sort of a codependence between the United States and Mexico and a kind of simultaneously, um, a a posture, a particular type of posture, but then also the kind of weird transparency of the kind of um, impulses and desires that are behind that posture, right? Like you know that Mexico has a whole rhetoric about how the border works, and sort of its a relationship to the United States, and the United States has its own, you know, the, the exact opposite looking in in the other direction. Um, so he's a sculpture, a sculptor, and a, a site specific um, artist, and um, and I uh, do in projects that sort of in part are about endurance practice, right? And um, uh, looking at survey work and serial imagery. And it, through conversation over some tequila and beer, um, we were discussing the fact that there was this border before the border, um, the 1821 border uh, as described in the Adams Onus Treaty of 1819. So the original treaty was between Spain and the United States and then of course Mexico gained independence and the treaty was ratified by a newly formed Mexico in the United States. And this boundary stretched from effectively present-day Brookings, Oregon to uh, the mouth of the Sabine River near Port Arthur, Texas. And it sort of, it, it, it runs a course along the 42nd parallel from the Pacific Coast um, to just north of Medicine Bow, Wyoming, and then straight south to the headwaters of the Arkansas River, then along the drainage of the Arkansas to the 100th Meridian, south along the 100th Meridian to the Red River, along the Red River to just north of the Sabine River, and then the Sabine River to the Gulf of Mexico. Um, And so it it was the official boundary, and in this case a boundary of agreement, of course, you know, all of the indigenous populations that lived in that area didn't have any say in that, but that's, you know, that is another layer in the narrative. Um, uh, it was um, that notwithstanding a, a boundary of agreement between the United States and Mexico. And what's so striking about it is that the boundary that we have to, today is a, is, a, is a boundary of conquest, right? It's, 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 a, it's a boundary that was created under duress. So we decided as a way to sort of um, make that history visible to form uh, what on our van uh, we're called, which is we were the Binational Commission of Historical and Geographical Borders. Um,
3: That was written on your van?
0: Yeah. um, yeah. um, Um, You had a logo? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, we ha- we actually do have delimitations T-shirts and hats. They were at the site Santa Fe Biennial. I should I should add that site Santa Fe for their um, their biennial series um, that was sort of looking at art of the Americas. Um, they had um, uh, it was a series called Sightlines, and the first installment of that uh, three biennial series was called Unsettled Landscapes. And so we were a, an off-site project in that. Um, in that iteration of the biennial um, so it was a it was a commission project for that and and the the notion was to make this border visible because it had never been physically marked. It existed for twenty seven years um, as the established boundary between Mexico and the United States, but in fact um, it's really only um, it's only manifestation was in maps and in treaty documents. And so it did not, act, it did not have a, a sort of physical um, uh, demarcation in the landscape. And so we decided to, to make that happen. But we decided to make it happen in a, in a very um, provisional way. So we, we constructed obelisks out of um, light gauge, galvanized steel, um, which we sort of stored in in parts, like all the various sides were all um, taken apart. I suppose I could show yeah, it, yeah. Um, yeah, let me see if I can, I can just, oh, actually, there you go. Um, so if I, that's our logo that's right awesome. there for our project. Very cool. <laughs> um, and that was on t-shirts and hats and all sorts of different things. And then um, that is actually the, that's the 1821 border right there. Hmm. And so just, you know, by way of context, um, In the United States, we don't like this is not common history. Like people know about the Mexican-American War, but what people don't know that um, uh, sort of what's what's the right way to say it? I'm stumbling over my words. Sorry about that. Um, What what people can't call uh, to mind immediately is that. Mexico encompassed all of present-day California, Nevada, Utah, about half of Colorado, all of Arizona, New Mexico, and Texas, and then small parts of Wyoming, Kansas, and Oklahoma. So it was basically a third of the continental United States, um, and it was over half of Mexico. So it was a radical reformation of the continental United States and a radical reformation of Mexico. Um, So we uh, made these monuments that are exactly the proportions of the contemporary cast iron obelisks because of the echo, um, because of of the association, but we made them out of light gauge steel and the idea was that we would mark this boundary Acknowledge that history, and then eventually that border would fade, um, and it would, you know, it would it would go away. A couple of the obelisks have been adopted, um, and people decided they did not want that history to to go to go forgotten. But uh, but for the most part, you know, they've they've been taken, they've blown over. You know, I think we probably lost a couple. Remember the floods. Um, in, like, 2016 on the Red River. I think we probably lost a few out into the Gulf of
3: Mexico. <laughs> I'm curious, did anyone get mad about it? The, did you have any, you know, where somebody removed an obelisk uh, because... I think I read that you had trouble in Utah.
0: We <laughs> did have a little
3: bit of trouble in
0: Utah, yes. Um, we had um, a situation with a, a farmer... Um, north of Salt Lake City, um, who was yeah, he was very irate about the idea of the project at all. Um, uh, was you know thought it was a ridiculous proposition. Curiously, his neighbor thought it was really interesting, and allowed us to put an obelisk in his farm fields. So
3: you caused a local conflict a little bit. Yeah. The neighborly, the
0: neighborly disagreement.
2: yeah. Exactly. Didn't someone also put you up.
0: Well, house? We did we, uh, one of the kind of really extraordinary and, and maybe this is sort of an interesting segue into some of the things that we've been talking about there's a gentleman named Mike Casey who owns um, a grill, a bar and grill in Dodge City, Kansas, which would have been a border town um, had it been there you know uh, or, or had the border persisted. Um, He was fascinated by the project, very, very conservative guy, but employed um, an entire restaurant of Latin American, Mexicano um, uh, employees, and was very much a kind of cowboy patron Mm -hmm. type character. Um, And we stayed at his home, and uh, Marcos and he, in particular, made a really deep connection. Um, They, you know, they just, they bonded. Um, and he helped us find a location for one of the obelisks near Dodge City. Because there was only private land. Uh, we wouldn't have been able to figure out where to locate. And his neighbor, he had a neighbor that enabled us to put the obelisk on her property.
3: How was um, So overall, how was the reception to this in terms of in a national sense? Um, I mean,
0: in a national sense, it's, it's actually been a project for both of us that has had an incredible life. I mean, it, it really captured um, the imagination of curators and, and it, has, it has shown widely both in Mexico and the United States. Um, the reception, we, you know, we had a lot of people, I think, were surprised by the history. Like we, in Medicine Bow, Wyoming, like, the whole town came out. Like, the mayor caught wind that we were there, and they were, like, you know, we had, like, 30 or 40 people, which it's only a town of, like, 200 people, so we had, like, a significant part of, portion of the population. And they were drinking beers and, you know, just and kind of teasing each other about who would have been in Mexico and who would have been in the United States because we, we you know, had the line running right down Maple Street um, in Medicineville, Wyoming, so yeah, it was it was fascinating to hear how people, because it was n- a, a novel understanding of history for them, um, were captivated by it. Um, and I think, in many ways, um, sort of set against how fraught the border is, um, that was an aspect of why it uh, has had such a longevity, in, you know, in the in the art world as well, right? Because it it becomes this really um, uh, Interesting way to activate the contemporary border space.
3: In this, in this sense, and this goes into one of the questions that I wanted to ask you originally. Um, like your view, and in looking at not only this work and all, the, the breadth of your work and, as a whole, um, how do you feel like as as a subject matter? You know, looking at the border in all these different ways, and this way, and. And how it ha- how has it um, enhanced or helped create your uh, kind of new view of the border? And I and I'm I'm saying this in the terms of narratives, right? We get a lot of narratives around the border. Oftentimes, those narratives come from the same people, right? Or the politicians, or you know, you know, even the media, or you know, you get a certain Narrative, But I'm wondering, you know, as an artist and looking at it through these sort of creative processes, you know, how does what sort of way do you is there something you could share with us even as a whole as a way something you've learned of how to look at these at these border narratives or shift them in a certain way or some way that you would recommend to us and how we could look at the border anew through through those sorts of artistic eyes.
0: Well, I think that the, you know, the border I mean the first thing I would say to that is that the very term the border, right, is a problem. I mean, and it is our shorthand, but it creates this sort of monolithic image of place, right? And the border is a is a is a demarcation. It's a it's a political geographic demarcation, but the place of the border is this continually variable geography, right, with distinct and discrete places, right, arrayed along it. And so, you know, any time you refer to it sort of with that, you know, that label, right, there's a kind of image that gets conjured. But, you know, the, that's like saying if you if you just sort of use the shorthand as this as the stand-in for actual place, right? I mean, even from Tijuana to Tecate, right? It's not the same border, right? Certainly from Nogales to El Paso, it's not the same border, right? It's 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 all of these different places, and and sort of using that as a leaping off point, um, and especially having you know been involved with this space for 20 years now um, the the border is all of the superlatives that we imagine it's all of the stereotypes we imagine and it's simultaneously none of those it's, it's infinitely more complicated and more nuanced and more layered than any of the sort of caricature um, uh, broad brush stroke portrayals Gives up. I mean, and a you know, perfect example would be, and this is early on in my experience. I um, had effectively embedded with the Border Patrol for you know a period of almost five years, and I, I was always captivated by um, the enormous contradictions in the lives of the people that were actually doing this work of enforcing immigration policy, and 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 frequently agents were the children of people who are legalized during the Immigration Reform and Control Act, right? And it was like, and, you know, you, they would use, you know, in some cases, um, you know, derogatory slang terms, and you'd be like, okay, but, the, like, these are your family, and they'd be like, well, yeah, I, I guess so, you know? Like, so it was it was really fascinating to me all of the, and continues to be fascinating, all of the contradictions. That said, um you know, it's only been going in one direction, right? And the and the border, um, you know, the, the 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 border has become harder and harder and more militarized, you know, over time. And the the tactics that are being used to enforce the border become, you know, ever more inhumane. Um, it was always, you know, it was always a problematic space even back then. But again, it's like, you know, it. Just when you think it can't get any worse, right it gets worse um, and so yeah it's I think the 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 stories within the stories the the um, uh, maybe to cycle back around to complex, one of the things that was really interesting to me and and felt important to me about that and I hope it comes through in the film is I wanted it to be something that you were kind of forced to sit with because the visuals, I mean, there's a kind of striking quality to the visuals, I think, because they're so resolved, right? And you see in this kind of vivid detail sort of what this space looks like. At the same time, it's like enormously banal, right? It's like enormously nondescript. And then you have these voices, right? And there's this like intense, intense human tragedy and you have to recognize that that's happening in that space, like as you're watching it, right um, and so like it's it's that it's this it's the reality in between these things that that we identify as like you know the the you know the meta narrative or whatever it is right like that 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 I think like we lose a lot of the time right we don't we we have trouble with we have trouble with. The things that don't align with, you know, sort of how how we see the world or how we feel like we understand things, and and I think, you know, within that there's there's a lot of work to be done. Yeah. Um. um, I
2: wanna I wanna ask you. So. So you you. First of all, you say you you practice endurance practice. Mm -hmm. I'm gonna co-opt that. (laughs)
0: <laughs> well I'm, also, I would, I'm also yeah.
2: engaged in the endurance practice. i i would, I, would <laughs> yeah.
0: I agree with that I mean, I think that that you know there's there's a kind of knowledge that we share having done this for as long as we have right yeah, like, and
2: I think endurance qualifies probably at this point for what we do because <laughs> <laughs> we've all been working on this I think around about the same amount of time, a couple of decades at, at least um Going back to complex, I just want to comment. So there's these modular cells that look like they're mobile detention cells, or can they be moved around to different places? Or I found those especially creepy and dystopian.
0: It's actually I, I, okay. it it's more dystopian than that actually. Oh, no. um, what it is is they're they're literally precast concrete detention cells. So they are the constituent components that the prison is built out, out of. And so they're mass produced. So they're, they're, they're cast, um, you know, at a factory location. They're then trucked to the location and they're stacked up like, so Legos. like Legos. Yeah. And so it's like a prefab prison. Do you know the factory? Uh, There's several, um, and you can just, like, uh, literally you can just search on the web, like... We had a story. (laughs) Yeah. I'll work on it with you. I'm happy to. Yeah, it's like, you know, and I actually have pictures of, like, the company that, like, that makes them, and they have, you know, they have casting dates and, you know, and and lot numbers and all of that sort of thing. Yeah. And the same is, like, the prison toilets, right? They're, like, you know, they're, they're, they're stainless steel fabricated, you know, mass produced in a factory. They, like, bolt them onto the wall. I'm actually doing some work where I've 3D printed one of these modular prison cells. I'm, I'm fascinated. And it sort of has a kind of um, connection to the other work that I shared with you, all the um, doing the kind of photogrammetry of the of the camera towers, you know. And just this, you know, it. I mean, that, one of the things I think maybe to sort of circle back around again in terms of the kind of um, uh, connections we've been making is, the, the border is everything that we, we we think of it, and and the discourse around the border is really about you know immediate exigencies, right? Um, and so we're you know it is a humanitarian crisis. It is it is about um, migration, you know, people who are fleeing um, uh, climate change, who are fleeing repressive regimes. right? It's all of those things. Um, one of the things we I don't think we've really grappled with, um, because it's happened slowly over the last twenty years, and because it's sort of all around us, the border is a nineteen hundred mile long service economy, and 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 there is enormous you know corporate interest sort of involved in all sort of facets of that, and there's just and there's so I actually was surprised I did a little bit of. Uh, Brushing up on numbers um, with the anticipation of this talk, um, back in 2018, the post 9/11, um, the sum total of spending on border security um, post 9/11 was like 450 billion. It's now a, almost a trillion, right? So it's just like it's just like this incredible, incredible amount of money that we're spending on you know on this and and. So much of it was like a pivot out of, you know, especially in the last 10 years, right, a pivot out of the Iraq-Afghanistan um, wars, right? So it's like there's just – it's very much a a, 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 a a kind of dystopian work in progress. So I'm going
2: to move to Q&A because – which is like my favorite part because I want to know what's all on, on your minds. Um, and I bet you've got lots of questions for David.
1: So We got questions? All right, here we go. Hi. Um, at the very beginning, you showed us the visuals of Eloy. And it's probably representative of many detention centers. Um, I was struck by a couple of things. One is that they are run as for profit by private businesses corporations, which I'm assuming are in contract with the government so and this is something i think we could advocate for would be why is it not included in the contract that they have to um, provide medical services that they have to preside provide a certain minimum of nutritional food i mean it seems to me when the government is offering this contract it's for more than just housing the bodies of these people and so I'm just thinking like what we as a community or individuals could do would be to put pressure on the government to provide more humane spaces in the detention center and include that in the for-profit contracts that they have.
0: Well, I, I guess the first thing I would say, um, and I appreciate, you know, I appreciate um, how you're approaching this in terms of thinking about you know, more humane treatment. Um, I'm gonna say before we go there though, I think we really need to think as a society what it means to effectively make displaced people into a commodity for industry, right? Like the fact that they are literally the raw material of industry. Um, uh, we, We have commodified human displacement, right? And that to me is a really you know, profoundly troubling place to have ended up at the, at this point. Um, and to, to speak to the specifics of your question, um, you know, those, those sorts of things are in the contracts, but these are, you know, these are fundamentally money-making enterprises. Um, and corp- corporations are not like, you know, are not like, um, public enterprises, you know, that, that, That you know, like your city services or something like that. They're they're about maximizing profit, Um, and so the and and frankly, the you know, for as much as there is you know human complication, like complication of these stories at the human level, like who is a border patrol agent, who is an ICE agent, and I'm you know I've always and sometimes to my own you know to my own detriment, I'm very careful about. Deconflating, you know, the individual from the system, um, but the system is it, that that we have collectively created is is pushing in a particular is pushing in a particular direction, and so it's real. You know, ICE is, you know, ICE is in the in the business of processing bodies, and they're not in the business of of, of being humane, and they and they speak to. You know they they speak the language. You know we have great medical treatment. You know we have you know we feed people we house people. But that's that's not what happens. I mean the question being they you know couldn't they couldn't they lose their contracts? The 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 really unfortunate fact is they don't. Um they in certain high profile circumstances when the the conditions have been enormously abject and abusive. There have been some contracts. um, Georgia, there was an example, right? But but for the most part, no. And there was, many of you may have caught it, Um, there was just a report released by NPR. um, And it just, and it shows just this absolute systematic um, uh, uh, problem um, of enormously inhumane conditions. Lack of, you know, lack of food, lack of, you know, just basic human needs being covered, no medical care, Um, abuse, you know, use of pepper spray, like really draconian use of pepper spray. Like people are trying to advocate for sort of just, you know, the most basic, basic necessities being met and they you know, they get pepper sprayed and not, you know, pepper sprayed like the worst circumstances that we hear, right? Like you're not even supposed to use CS gas in an enclosed space, right? And what happens is they throw in the CS grenade or spray people and then they close the door, right? And it's like, you know, people can have severe respiratory damage. I mean, it's it's very, very um, uh, troubling and it's the, it's the most abject, ab- you know, circumstance you can think of.
4: Uh, Gary uh we had another dark era like this of incarceration and detention camps. During World War II in Arizona and California, at least five detention camps with equally terrible conditions, Loop, Arizona, Sacatone, a lot of them were put on Indian reservations, ironically. But they did have ombudsman civil rights activists like Ned Spicer, a Quaker from Tucson, was the advocate for them all around. And I don't know if there's a similar thing now. And then the other irony is that many of those from World War II are now national historic sites. Mm What would be the national historic sites from this area? Monsonaris is mm-hmm. one of the Japanese relocation camps. What, as an artist, geographer, uh, human rights advocate, would you say about that?
0: Well, I, I think I, I love that question. If, if our architecture is emblematic of who we are, if you think about, say, the Works Progress Administration, that was, you know, and of course there's all sorts of, you know, The Bureau of Reclamation, right? There's a sordid history there. I mean, none of this is without, you know, problems. um, But the WPA and all of the products of that moment were ultimately, you know, optimistic, right? (laughs) Um, And I would say that in immigration courts, in uh, migrant detention facilities, in border patrol stations, in border wall and all of constituent security apparatus that surround that, that is that is the most significant architectural legacy we've created in the last twenty years, um, and it does not say anything very pretty about who we are as a nation. So I, I, you know, cumulatively as a as a as a as some sort of a, it's a really dark counter memorial, is what it is. Um, you know, it, it's it's. Uh, it's not, uh, it doesn't say anything good about us. Uh,
2: following up, I want to cite uh, one of Todd's books, Build Bridges, Not Walls, WPA Built Bridges. This, this generation builds walls.
5: A <laughs> couple of questions. One is just kind of con- to confirm. The video was set, shot, referencing the onset of the COVID pandemic mm-hmm. during the Trump administration. Mm-hmm. Trump was as cruel as he could contrive to be to migrants. Has that changed with Trump out of office?
0: Sadly, it has not.
5: It has ossified into yeah. bureaucratic invisibility
0: yeah that is that's the thing right we and and this is I, I mean i have a I have a number of different sort of conflicting emotions about this i I think that. On the left, we need to we need to be really careful because at, at key moments we've had decisions to make and we've engaged in arguments of of equivalence. You saw it in the argument around you know, Bernie versus Hillary, right? And people that were like you know um, Bernie or nobody, right? And you know to whatever degree we saw it with you know Nader as well, right? Like that that was, that was a fork in the road. And there are, there are arguments that we make like, oh, there's, there's no difference. You know, there's no, there's no difference in these choices. And it's, um, you know, there's still going to be massive problems, but, but it can get worse. It can get a lot worse, right? And, and I think we need to really be thoughtful about, you know, how we draw our, our sort of lines and sort of contrive our camps around these issues. Um, and then what happens, you know, speaking to exactly what you're, you're discussing, yeah, it only seems to go in one direction, right? We, you know, the 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 wall building stops, and you know, just when we think like, okay, now Obama's in office, um, and you know, this the these these regimes are going to um, uh, diminish, um, they don't. I mean, in fact, Barack Obama, as much as I admire him as a president and think he is an in- extraordinary human being who. Showed an entire generation of um, youth what was possible, um, and that's probably one of his most enduring legacies. We have the really problematic con- um, uh, simultaneous truth of the fact that more people were deported during his administration than in all the previous administrations, the five Correct. previous administrations. And so we, we have to live with both of those things, right? Um, they're both mm-hmm. true. May I?
5: Another? Yes. Um, Also, I was considering that most people assume that the migrants are Mexican. They are not.
0: They come from all over the world. They come through Mexico.
5: What is Mexico's role in this crisis?
0: Well, I mean, this is actually, I mean, this is Todd's this is Todd's new book, right? This is the Empire of Borders. Um, so maybe I should. You, I'm going to hand that to you because this is. I'm. I'm in the middle of reading Todd's book, and this is absolutely, you know, what he's talking about. So. Um. Can
3: you your mic? All right. <laughs> okay. Briefly. Um. Yeah. So uh, Mexico. Um. Uh. Yeah, I think it was in 2014. uh, I wrote an article called um, Mexico, the US Border Patrol's new hire. Basically, that was the year, 2014, there was a big Programa Frontera Sur, which is the southern border program in Mexico. They started, uh, and you could see considerable reinforcement of the Mexican southern border, particularly Guatemala. And under the tutelage of US, of, U- of the United States, U.S. Border Patrol agents went to southern Mexico. They gave trainings, all kinds of funding, went, went to southern Mexico yeah. for all kinds of supplies, um, technologies, biometric uh, hu- biometric stuff, huge uh, checkpoints. There's gigantic mega checkpoints. If you ever go down in southern Mexico, come up any highway coming from south to north, you're going to go through these these shopping mall-sized mega checkpoints where you have to get you, away from the border, like 25, 50 miles away from the border, where you have to get off the bus. If you're on a bus, I'm usually on a bus when I'm going through these things. Get off the bus and really literally go through another border where you have to present your passport and you get eyed by immigration officials. And you go through all these... Weird technological things that are probably taking your doing facial recognition and that sort of thing and so but in a nutshell, Mexico is definitely even before two thousand and fourteen but two thousand and fourteen was a was a was a date in which you could see a considerable upsurge in Mexican sort of cooperation with the United States in enforcing its southern borderlands borderlands I want to say that too because it extends deep into like hundreds of miles into Mexico, into Southern Mexico where you have to go through checkpoints. If you go from Tapatula to Ariaga, which where it's a town where a lot of people get the train, it's like 100, 100 miles. You have to go through usually like 10 or 12 or, I count every time, it's at least 10 checkpoints. Sometimes it's 15 checkpoints, it just depends, so.
6: Thank you, Darcy Alexandra. um, I very much agree with your argument that what we're seeing is the commodification of human displacement. I have a really specific question about water. And um, I guess it was in all of the excellent reporting around the the Trump administration's building of the wall and the destruction of Quito-Baquito Springs, Mm -hmm. I started to wonder about the use of water within this carceral continuum. And, like, who is monitoring that? When you go to hydrologists' presentations about water usage in Arizona, you'll hear about agriculture. You know, nowhere in their pie charts is um, are these detention centers. And so I was just curious, like, are they not being monitored? Does anyone know uh, where that information might be and who is thinking about that? Because... I think that's also another layer of this, uh, as well, that I've been thinking about.
0: Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, you know, they're pri- you know they're private corporations contracted with ICE. Um, you know, I've read the annual reports. I ha- I wasn't looking for that particular kind of information. I I, I guess I wouldn't imagine that they use a- that much water, right? Because it's like you know it's like a it's a residential living facility in that regard. And it's not like they're letting them take long showers. Right. Um, so, um, and the toilets are, you know, low flow. So, you know, I mean, it's, I think it might be the opposite of that. They're, they're probably not huge water users. They're not, you know, the, the properties aren't irrigated. I mean, they're basically, you know, yeah, yeah, they're really, really inhospitable. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that probably that's not, um, I thought where you're going with that question though is, is much more about like, sort of water as it relates to the border, which I think is going to be a big issue coming down the pike. Um, I think that that's one of the, I think that's a shoe that's yet to drop and, um, and we don't know entirely what that's gonna look like.
2: Um, I can speak to my experience from Texas, which is where I've spent the last 20 years. And, and these private uh, detention facilities, what they do is they enter into contracts with the counties, with these rural counties, and they offer all kinds of like, ec- economic incentives that they're going to employ all the people that live in the county. And so they're getting that farmland to build on. And, and, and a lot of times the county will um, pay for the construction by taxing their communities. Which has ended up to be an awful deal for some of these rural communities. So they're using the water rights, I imagine, from the from the farmlands, you know, and they have rule of capture in Texas. So whoever has the biggest straw uh, gets the water. So I imagine those water rights change hands there uh, through through the farmland and uh, and through the county, depending on whether they're inside the in city municipality or they're outside in on county.
4: County land. They uh, themselves
7: Since I have the microphone, I'm going to ask a question. Um, I was uh, last year um, attending a Zoom seminar with some playwrights who were um, involved in climate change and you know, bringing environmental crises into the theater. And there was a person who, a a woman who was actually a playwright attached to an environmental institute. And she kind of got in trouble with a couple of the other people because uh, they said, well, art is about emotion. How can you do something that's just about trying to get facts out to people or information? And there was actually quite sort of a, a deal about it in this discussion. I wonder, because you describe yourself as an artist researcher, which I find to be a very interesting description. So have you run into that issue, or is that not is that a settled issue in your neck of the woods?
0: Well, I mean, I think that, you know, the sort of question is predicated on the idea that there has to be one kind of artwork, right? That one, one thing qualifies as art. I mean, art is you know, it, it it is an enormously variable um, practice with lots of different you know, lots of different products that are manifest to, you know, out of people's creative impulse and um, and it can it can range um, from something that's you know, entirely formal to something that's you know, deeply narrative um, and and something that's Relatively light to incredibly dark material, and I mean it 's that all of that all of that can can constitute the breadth of artistic practice.
7: Um, I also have one sort of comment question. Uh, I noticed uh, and I actually saw this much more clearly on the big screen for that detention center, the parking lot has trees around it. Mm-hmm. And nothing else does. <laughs> so I guess the cars deserve that kind of you know environment, <laughs> but the people don't. Is that typical of the other detention centers that you've this sort of blasted earth?
0: No, well, I mean it depends on where. You, I mean it, it runs with the geography. So all the ones in the west for sure. But uh, the Adams County Detention Center, um, which is kind of an, uh, an amazing. I actually have a little video of the Adams County Detention Center. Um, uh, with me, but it's uh, it's embedded in forest. It's surrounded by forests in Mississippi, um, and uh, it's positively verdant. Um, that said, it's no less dystopian. When I made uh, in 2021 a video of that, um, there were I think it was like roughly 1,500 uh, detainees there. It's all um, people who have been convicted on federal charges of felony reentry. Um, and out of that population of 1500 detainees, 600 people had Corona virus. Okay. So it was like literally the plague in the facility. So, um, so that, you know, the, the simple answer is, um, uh, I think they're all really horrible, um, regardless of whether they're in the middle of a forest or the middle of the desert. Um, uh, but yeah, it pretty much it's, it's in keeping with, you know, when you see them in Texas, it's you know, alfalfa fields and, you know, or like near the Rio Grande detention center, it's that, you know, um, river bosque um, uh, along the uh, Rio Grande and Laredo, right? So it's just, it's tip, it's typ- whatever the typical, the, the typical geography, geography is. is.
7: Other questions? Oh.
8: My name is Ana Maria Vasquez, and I'm with the Border Patrol Victims Network, and I'm always here the Border Chronicle, and I know you guys doing so wonderful work. Este, I just arrived from, from Panama for the border with Colombia, and uh, so it's kind of like I'm seeing it right now from that side, you know, and uh, one thing, we were invited, the, the families of who have been shot and killed by the Border Patrol. We were invited to Colombia to to speak to people there because right now, the policy on the people coming from Colombia changed, you know? When we had so much, I mean, still it's not that the things are all right in Colombia, but we have now a government that is chosen by the people, and uh, a lot of the murders that have been happening for over 52 years, you know, th- those th- the right wing is really very upset. So, one strategy that is we see now is that the United States started to give uh, different treatment to the people coming from Colombia. You know, when when uh, we had Uribe and so many murders, I was living on the border with Panama, and people couldn't get out. And e- even the people when they got out, they would be called displaced people, not refugees, and could never leave. The, the, the panamanian rainforest still you know is like that so so we know that migration also is used to empty areas to stop uh, social movements in countries and one thing that the mothers would ask in colombia is like please tell our young people that is a lie When they tell them that they're gonna get to the border and it's gonna be easy to cross, or now if you take a child, it's much easier. So I feel like uh, the work that you are doing, uh, all of this, if we we could, uh, it should be heard all over Latin America. It should really, because a lot of people come with the wrong idea. They are thinking that this because they are they are uh, engañados, no. Like, oh, yes, things are going to be good. And many people from small villages that don't even know what's going on. Mm-hmm. So, so this is a worrisome thing for a lot because then you find the mothers that are looking for the remains of their children all over Latin America because even before reaching the border, a lot of people get lost. We know that the United States started based on slavery. And it's still this slavery... But now you give your life even to get into this plantation, you know? So so this is something that, uh, no sé, just, you know. And, and uh, I am not surprised at anything because after, in 25th of February 2020, it was legalized to kill people across the border. This is what the Supreme Court decided in the Hernandez versus Mesa case. After that, all is possible. Mm-hmm. Yep. The last the question of this is we are hearing now that there are processing centers in many countries. Now in Colombia, there is a processing center. We remember that grown detention center was called a processing center when people could be there for years. So what have you heard about this?
2: Thank you so much for for that comment, and um, and we have to have you on the Border Chronicle. <laughs> uh, would love to would love to interview you and the families. Um, I we actually have a podcast coming out. I I just interviewed a woman who spent several months in the Darien uh, doing doing research and speaking speaking to migrants and, and everybody coming through, and and she had a similar comment that. People are starving for information. People have been misinformed, disinformed. And, and she said, I, I really feel like what we need is a multilingual communications office in the Darien just to give people uh, information and, and the truth about what is really happening and what they can expect if they, if they try to move north um, because people, people don't know or they're lied to or, you know, or people, are just, people are very desperate. And 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 people take advantage of that desperation and of that of that hope. Um, so yeah. So thank you for for, for making making that comment.
3: And did you want to say Did you hear that? Um, at the processing center in Colombia that there was a a report that came out maybe a week or so ago. So this started. It's apparently in April. Was it April? The process something like that. And, and the report was, that it was from an NGO, and the person remained anonymous, but said, the, per, the, the anonymous person said that, um, that not one person had been processed at the processing center. These are, these are the processing centers for people that don't know. They're requiring people who are requesting asylum um, to go to these processing centers first before they arrive to the US border. They can't arrive to the US border without going to these processing centers. And if they do without going to going to one of these processing centers or using the the app, the CBP1 app, then they will be rejected at the border.
2: Well, they have to request asylum in the first country they enter before. Yeah. Well, I was just going to say they have to this is a thing that Biden just passed in January. Well, after after Title 42 ended in May, that Uh, people have to apply for asylum in the first country that they enter and then only if they're denied by that country can they continue here to ask for asylum but they have to apply through a CBP1 app that only works on brand new smartphones with really good Wi-Fi and it has millions of errors and almost never works. (laughs) Okay, uh, further
7: questions?
9: Thank you um for David, uh, I think that we all see how visual arts are just such a powerful tool to shed some light on some of these really big issues in a way people can really like have the emotions. you know I was wondering if you can share a little bit more about the Confluence Center and the work that is coming and how people in the community also can find ways to collaborate and continue to use art as a tool to shed some light on these issues.
0: The Confluence Center is um, it's an amazing organization I'm really proud to be a part of. Um, it's, a, it's an enormous honor to be on the advisory board. Uh, Javier Duran uh, at the University of Arizona is um, uh, the founding director of the Confluence Center, and there's an incredible team um, that he has um, uh, working with him there. Um, they've, uh, over a period of uh, about a decade now, I think it was just came into being, just before I joined um, faculty at U of A. So it's a little bit over a decade. They've managed to um, uh, attract funding from uh National Endowment for the Arts um, uh, and uh, larger granting organizations uh, over time now culminating uh, most recently with major major grants from the Mellon Foundation, the Ford Foundation, um, and the the real modus operandi of the of the Confluence Center is to um, realize um, much of what would you would consider the sort of best aspirations of what a university can be. Um, uh, Fulfilling the HSI mission, the Hispanic Serving um, uh, Institution mission of the university, being very outward looking um, toward the communities who um, are immediately proximate to the university. Um, Programs um, that I've been a part of uh, directly include the Fronteridades Fellows Program, that it's been for um, undergraduate students, graduate students, and faculty, various programs that advance research and uh, creative work. Uh, Particularly interdisciplinary research is is an emphasis, but it can be um, discipline specific. As a matter of fact, Jackie Arias, who's here in the audience, was the recipient of a Fronteridades Fellowship, um, through a one of the iterations of the program's called the uh, the Border Lab. Um, Border Lab is intended to bring um, uh, attention to the university as um, an important um, destination for borderlands research, um, and to advance um, uh, you know f- ground research and and um, primary source research. In, uh, at U of A, that as it relates to the borderlands, um, and there's also uh, you know other other ask of what the um, uh, Confluence Center is interested in. Like they did a whole program called Blackness in the Borderlands, looking at African American history in the borderlands. So just lots of um, uh, different ways that they approach um, uh, the the space um, that the University of Arizona occupies um, in, a, in a much larger context and sort of trying to um, really uh, advance important uh, work that, that relates to, relates to that.
7: Okay, uh, it's getting nearly five o'clock. Uh, do we have a question?
9: Um, and you can keep it brief. Um, I'm also running out of battery. so. <laughs> um, and not to get too technical, but about the film that we saw and the drone footage. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the only other piece that I've seen that Kind of gets in there in the facilities is the infiltrators of mm-hmm. uh, the feature film yeah, right which is beautiful which, which is mixes reality with fiction mm-hmm. and they actually do infiltrate people into the facilities to be able to portray what is happening there because it's nobody can see in there right. um so d- touching in the drowning, the, the drone footage and the, the legality the legal hurdles of you know, being able to fly around and above this space. Um, And you mentioned that the law is about to change, I assume, at the state level. um, At the federal level. At the federal level. So if you can talk a little bit about the legal hurdles of of shooting uh, the way you did this film.
0: Well, um, so I know the drone laws for each state by heart. And I am often, well, I am always operating, you know, right at at the edge of them. Um, So I am in, you know, legal airspace um, uh, as it relates to the facilities which are considered critical infrastructure, right? And they have a, you know, there's a, there's an exclusion zone. Um, I don't think that when those regulations were written, the it was quite anticipated how powerful these tools would get, how quickly they would get that powerful. Um, what's gonna change um, uh, really soon, vis-a-vis um, uh, the legal framework, is the FAA is rolling out uh, a program called Remote ID. Um, and all of us, like I, I as a university employee, um, uh, to digress for just a second, I'm, I am, have a commercial dr- uh, uh, FAA uh, airman certificate for operating a UAV. Um, and then you know I am a, I'm a university employee so I have to like be accountable for what I do right so I'm operating you know in the space that is um, legally accessible it varies from state to state um, in Texas there's actually not a minimum distance the law is that if you're you um, if you're anybody other than a university professor, like they they stipulate that you, the only people that can do what I did are people who who are conducting sanctioned um, academic research. So that would be me. Um, And then uh, the other other stipulation is that you are not allowed to disturb the operations of the facility. So of course that becomes a real you know, that becomes a really tr- touchy subject because, you know, it could just be one detainee that sees it or one guard that sees it, right? And then, you know, that's disturbing the facility, right? Like, that's a very subjective, um, you know, that's a very subjective uh, uh, condition. So, um, the that said, the, the legal framework that's gonna change, being remote ID, what's going to happen is all UAVs are going to have to broadcast their unique identifier. It's basically like um, uh, the ADS in an aircraft, um, and so we're going to have to broad. The drone is going to have to broadcast its ID and its location, and then from the drone, it will also broadcast the location of the controller. And so, the degree to which there's a certain amount of anonymity. Um, which has played really interesting to me, uh, interestingly for me in various circumstances. I'll, I'll share a story, which y- you all were, we, you were hoping we'd get to this. So this is kind of good. I was uh, flying the Rio Grande detention center um, and a border patrol agent pulled up to me and he started talking me up. And I was, I'm very, very aware as I'm operating this thing that um, I'm right on the Rio Grande and I'm around the Rio Grande detention center. And one of the things that is very, you know, urgently important when you operate these is to be careful of other aircraft. And of course, Border Patrol helicopters come through all the time, right? And they don't really have a minimum ceiling level when they're coming through. And so, if there's a border patrol helicopter coming through, it's my responsibility as a smaller aircraft to get out of the way. So I'm very, you know, I'm very vigilant about what I'm doing because the last thing, you know, that's not a great headline. University of Arizona professor collides with border patrol helicopter. <laughs> right? He had a promising career. Um, so um, border patrol agent stops, starts talking me up, and he's like, "What are you doing?" And I have a kind of cam, I have a kind of camouflage I wear. I have a like a reflective vest, and I. Actually Actually, have a, um, a, a hard hat that it was on loan to me from a construction worker. That I, w- I won't give more detail than that in this yeah. case, but um, but it just it sort of you blend in really easily. And so he asks me what I'm doing, and I just say I'm doing survey work, which is not you know it's totally accurate. Um, and we we get to chatting back and forth, and he's very jovial. And I say, you know, actually I got to stop talking because I, I have to pay attention to what I'm doing. And he's like, oh, are you flying a drone? And then I like it's like other shoe is going to drop, right? And um, But he immediately says, oh, I'll, and I, and I explain, I have to be careful about the Border Patrol helicopters. And he's like, oh, I'll just put it out on the radio for you, like, so you don't have to worry, you know? And it was just like this kind of hilarious, you know, like exactly the opposite of the response that you might expect, right? And then, so, you know, it's like, here's the red carpet, right? Conversely, I had a, I had a, um, uh, Conversation that was fraught with a agent near Nogales who said you can't be doing this, and I kind of held my ground and said, actually, yes, I can. Um, this is clear space, um, and we went back and forth several times. And he asked me who I was. He took my ID, gets into the Gila vehicle, he gets back out, and he's like, would you just call us the next time? You know, so like, you know, it can it can cut either way. But my my point in all of that is now with the remote ID, and you'll be able to see the drones and see the controllers on an app, the kind, you know, that sort of gray area, I think will become much less, um, uh, yeah, much less easily sort of worked in, right? It's gonna, it's gonna become, you know, you, you, people, are, people say, you know, there's a drone there, there's an operator there, you know, they'll come track you down. And I think, I think it's gonna change the dynamics of how somebody might be able to do this kind of work. And I mean, it's it's all about, you know, making the airspace um, uh, free for industry too, right? Like you've got Amazon deliveries, right? It's about beyond visual line of sight, you know, operation of drones. Um, But it's also about controlling the airspace in these sort of um, arenas as well, I'm quite sure.
3: David, thank you so much.
0: Thank you, it's been an honor. I really appreciate it.
3: Um, If people want to find your work, where would they need to look?
0: I think we'll have some links in the podcast, and uh, my um, my website is uh, detailerphoto.com, and you can also access um, my bio at the University of Arizona in the University of Arizona School of Art, and that has links out for my work and my you know various social media presences, such as they are, which are actually I'm. That's a whole story unto itself. I have an Instagram feed that has no posts because I have an issue with the fact that images feel like they've gotten really cheap with Instagram, and I'm like, you know, have a problem with that, but that's a, that's, hey, that's a much about longer conversation. we're to start an Instagram page. <laughs> so, well, I think it's, you know, if different reasons, right? It's yeah, just like yeah, I know, I know. social media I'm, is like... I'm I'm very a very hesitant. ...downfall. But, uh, yeah.
3: <laughs> but thank you so much. It was thank such you. a pleasure to talk with you.
0: Yeah, Thank you.
7: Sign up for the Border Chronicle on your way out, please. (laughs) And pay, paid subscriptions. We're looking for paid subscriptions. (laughs) Money, money. Thank you so much all for coming. Um, I feel very optimistic actually about the future of the border. Uh, We have a very deep bench here on our team and this is the rest of our team and there's many more of our team out there. So go team, thank you. Good night.
3: You've been listening to the Border Chronicle podcast. The Border Chronicle is reported by Todd Miller and Melissa Del Bosque, based in Tucson, Arizona. This episode was edited by me, Steve Heiss. If you like what you're hearing, please consider rating us on your favorite podcast platform. It will help other people find the show. You can read and listen to more local border journalism on our website, theborderchronicle.com.